I'm here with uh, C. Michael Smith. Michael, it's um, it's a real pleasure to have the opportunity to speak with you. I've read your book, Young in Shamanism and Dialogue. Uh, wow. I found it really resonant with some of the connections I've made over the years. And um, I'm especially interested in the work you've developed since then, which you're calling A Little Psychology of the Heart. And that also resonates with my heart. So really happy to have you here. And I want to thank you for joining us. Thank you, Brian. I'm delighted to be here and uh, see what we cook up together. Happy you read the book. Yeah, I wrote it a long time ago. And uh, if you want to dive into that, I'm I'm ready to do it. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, you know, it's one of those things. You write a book, and it and it lives, it lives on, and people discover it anew even 30 years after you wrote it. So I hope this isn't uh, too much looking back to the past. But I, I'm interested in your journey toward writing that book. What brought you to put Jung and shamanism into dialogue? Oh uh, yeah. So that goes back about 40 years. Uh, Around the time I was age 32, and uh, I had a spiritual awakening, really. Uh, Stan Groff would call it a spiritual emergency, really. And uh, I had been doing psychedelics and uh, uh, suddenly I started seeing this um, uh, big... Uh, eagle-like uh, creature in the trees. Uh, at first, it was only at night, and then it was in the daytime, and then it was when I was driving my car. And uh, on one occasion, uh, I'm on my way to my office, and the road opens up, and uh, the car just dives in, like, to the netherworld. And uh, there's all kinds of numinous entities there, and I'm deeply fascinated I'm also doing about 65, 70 miles an hour going down a two-lane highway. And it was all I could do to pull myself out of that state. I was aware that I was driving. So I had a, like a divided consciousness, you know, knowing I was driving, yet my attention, the road didn't even exist, you know. So pulling myself back out. And uh, long story short, when I came back out of that, I... I said to my my now ex-wife uh, that uh, this is what happened. And um, number one, she didn't share my kind of experiences and uh, thought it strange. But she said, you know, don't just, just don't go to a psychiatrist or anything like that. <laughs> They're going to put you on the drugs, you know, the the suppressive ones, you know. He said, uh, I think the union analyst get back into analysis because I'd been into analysis, so I did. I spent a couple sessions with this guy, uh, uh, Tom Kapusinskis, and he, he said, uh, I think in the second session, I know what this is. This is a shamanic awakening. Mm. It's a kind of a crisis, and what you really need is a medicine man. You know, I, I can hold a supporting structure, but let's find you somebody that knows about this thing. Wow. And, and so that took a few months, and I ended up going up to northern Canada and I did a vision quest, but I was up there two weeks on an island called Windshift Island. It's in the middle of Lake Tomogamy, which is a huge lake with uh, hundreds of islands on it. Yeah, I'm originally from Ontario, actually. Oh, okay, okay. It's a beautiful, stunning place. And I was by this place called, I think it was Bear Mountain. It was uh, like a Jeebway vision quest uh, spot, you know. 
Uh, and there were other people. I was not the only one, but I was invited on this trip and, uh, drove up there from where I live. Uh, I think it was about 16 hour drive <clears throat> straight north, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, the road kept getting narrower until it was a dirt road. And then there was a little airport by the water with a plane, you know, hydroplane on the water. And, uh, I paid that guy, uh, I don't know, 150 bucks or something to fly me to Windshift Island and land and ask him to come back in two weeks, which he did. So um, Windshift Island, is there anyone living on that island? Uh, at the time, there was a guy named Dave Knudsen who owned that island, so to speak, and had a retreat center there. Hmm. Um, the island I went to for the Vision Quest was off that some ways. They used a canoe, actually a Voyager canoe, to get to... Uh, I looked at a lot of islands, but I wanted to be totally alone and out there. But uh, I spent about a week in sweat lodges and stuff and then uh, uh, started fasting a few days before and then uh, did a morning sweat lodge and got in the canoe and went straight out to my island. Probably has a name, but there were no humans on it, just animals, the forest. It's incredible. Mm. And I uh, fasted four days and nights, which uh, was something of a challenge uh, because uh, I, first I, I fell out of the canoe into the water. And then uh, that was frustrating. Uh, it was kind of a rocky bottom and stuff. But, you know, I pulled myself up onto land. I had a few items that I had brought with me. Uh, but it should be the first time in my life to go without water or food for four days and nights. And, uh, I did drink of the water and that was a mistake, you know, right out of the lake. It looked so pure, you know, <laughs> but I got a bad case of dysentery. So this was part of my vision quest, you know. Hmm. Uh, and I picked a couple of berries when I was wrestling with the hunger, but really I'm in it like the, by the second day, I'm okay with the hunger and it didn't even bother me. I mean, I wasn't even having hunger pains and, uh, I battle mosquitoes, things like that. But these are common kinds of experiences, you know, to be uh, having hunger pains and mosquitoes, something like that. Like that. Yeah, and but like, uh, um, to follow to your canoe into the water. It seems to me whenever I'm going on a meaningful quest of some kind, there's always an element of uh, humiliation involved. <laughs> yeah. I had to process some anger. And for the first day and a half or so, I am just, my mind is active. So it's just thinking and thinking and analyzing and remembering, remembering. And so finally, I am so sick of thinking. Yeah. I can't stand it, you know, <laughs> and it just stops. And for most of the rest of the experience, there's no thought really. You know, there's clouds floating by, there's images in the heavens, there's interactions with the birds. And, uh, some chipmunks and squirrels and that sort of thing. Right. More uh, just deep. dropping into presence, it sounds like. Yeah, right. And I'm sitting on the ledge. These islands are really fragments of glaciers. So, so there are lots of stony rock and stuff. So I'm, I'm sitting on the edge by the water where I kind of made my circle to stay in. And uh, there was a big stone I'm sitting nearby. And uh, in that... Uh, thoughtless space uh, that stone was so alive and beautiful it was just a stone but 
I'd put water on it and it would change color. So I think it was granite. It, uh, the beauty of it just really struck me. And then this deep intuitive insight, what the Toltecs call silent knowledge happened, you know, mm-hmm. that this was like a metaphor for my lives. And that, uh, what I'm about is being as real as that stone is real, you know, being what I am and how to help other people uh, connect with that in themselves. Uh, because I was connecting with it and had been before I arrived at the island, but now it was conscious what I was connecting with. And the stone itself seemed to be a symbol for the heart and the heart path and just being what you are and not some pretending persona or something like that. Well, so, it, it, it's amazing you say that, actually. It strikes me. Um, I, I was in my first period of working with ayahuasca in the Santo Daime Church. Uh, after a number of ceremonies, I was down in uh, outside of Portland attending some ceremonies there, and I received my first hymn. So the whole doctrine of that church uh, comes from received hymns, and I received one. And uh, the first line is, my heart is a stone that I've placed in this river oh, to, be wow. smooth, to be smoothed and polished by the lessons I'm taught. Mm-hmm. So that, that resonates, yeah. Yeah. So how old are you at this point? Uh, 34, 35, something like that. Right on schedule for a, a midlife uh, reawakening? Yeah, I didn't see it that way at the time, but but it was. Uh, what I wanted to tell you about it was that it somehow grounded me. I, I then saw, you know, what my life uh, can be about, and I said yes to it, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so from there, then I had to tool up to, you know, get a vehicle to make myself of service, and hence getting the doctorates and getting a psychology license, going to Jung Institute, all that. It was like creating a vessel by which I could do what I could do. And all the wow. time I'm in Jungian analysis. So this kind of tamed this wild hallucinatory, you know, so I could have the experience when I chose, but not be just blown about by it. Right. So up until that point, what had you been doing with your life? Well, I was already, uh, first of all, I, sh- I should say I was, a, I was an ordained minister and I was not happy in that. Okay. Oh. So it was kind of my crossroads. And, uh, I, when I was in seminary, I'd also gotten a master's in counseling psychology. So I made this shift, but, uh, what I noticed was I wasn't really doing psychology. Okay. I mean, it's psychotherapy. I, I the people that were coming to me sometimes uh, were in extreme states and I would just know what to do, but I didn't know how I knew how to do it. And even the staff in the clinic I worked with were very curious about how I knew what to do. Like mm-hmm. this little girl was in a car accident. Her family was killed. She's in a hospital and she's not talking. And after two weeks, I got a call and they asked me if, you know, I'd be willing to see this girl. And they brought her in and she was all beat up from the accident. She lost her mother her father, you know, and siblings in this car crash and was left with um, uh, relatives and a multi-million dollar uh, endowment. <laughs> so relatives were fighting over who's going to get custody of her because of the money. Mm. This is the sort of thing. And I just asked them to please shut up and bring her to my office every day. And I had lunch with her and she didn't talk, but I, I was very fine with that. She didn't need a talk. Look at the hell she'd just been through, you know. 
She yeah. went right in there to talk to it. So, you know, and I'd offer her some food. Sometimes she'd take it from my hand, you know. But one day, um, I started playing checkers with myself. I'd move around. She's seated right beside me. And I'd play both sides of the checkerboard, you know. And that went on for three or four days. And finally, I just turned the checkerboard towards her like it was her move. And she jumped a couple pieces I had set up so that <laughs> she would do it. She was nine years old. And uh, I looked at her in surprise, and she giggled and then began to talk to me. It was just a very natural thing, you know. But that's how I was operating. It wasn't, I didn't learn that from a textbook or from school or anything, you know, and whoever I was seeing, I was working that way. Um, but I didn't have a license to practice. You know, I had this degree, but, you know, I felt like I hadn't been properly trained. Mm. And um, I wasn't sure psychotherapy was right for me anyway. So that was kind of the crossroads. And uh, that led me to the vision quest, which eventually led me to the University of Chicago. I had already made contact with Mircea Eliade, this uh, great historian of religions that had written a big book on, on shamanism. Yeah. And he mentored me a bit, and then he recommended me to Robert Moore. So that's how I came to work with Robert Moore. And uh, I brought my shamanic experiences to Moore, and he was fascinated and uh, he was fascinated with my indigenous experiences too. And so he asked me to write the Young and Shamanism book, mm-hmm. which I did because I thought, great, that'll be a platform for me. Yeah. Well, I'm just curious, like, um, just to go over that history a little bit. Um, so you go to seminary, you're working as a minister and like a pastoral counselor. Why did you start to experiment with psychedelics? Because it seems like that would be something that would be um, discouraged, I think, for someone in that role, if I'm correct. Yeah, right. Um, that whole ministry thing didn't really fit me well. I, I liked actually studying philosophy and theology, you know. So, uh, And a lot of that was to uh, break away from my father's... Uh, cartography, the one he had imposed on me as a child. Uh, and he was an evangelical minister mm. with a very narrow view, a very pessimistic view, really, of life. And that never sat well with me somehow intuitively. So I decided I'm going to read everything that he doesn't want me to read, philosophically, theologically, scientifically. So it was like a, a Toltec reworking of my belief system. Mm. And when I came out of that, I was, you know, I was about to be ordained. <laughs> but I was already, I'm not sure this is right for me, you know, and I did it for three years and people at the church loved me, but others complained that I was really doing psychology or something. This is not ministry, you know, this is yeah. not the gospel. And I said, I think you're right, you know. <laughs> yeah, so then I thought, well, I'll try, you know, psychotherapy. And you, you used the word pastoral counseling. That's, that was the route open to me. I didn't really need the license. You know, I could actually do it that way. And so that's what I did. But I was not satisfied with using that framework because you had to be a member of a church. Uh, my ordination had to be under something like a bishop's control, you know. So I, I didn't like these ties, these, these people telling me what my belief systems can be. Yeah. You know, 
Mm-hmm. So uh, psychedelics helped me further break out of that, I think. And I'd used them as a teenager, you know, from 17 to 19. And then here it was, what, I don't know how many years later, 15 years later, and I wanted to try them again, you know. And it just blew open my world spiritually and psychologically. Yeah, I can relate. Um, so you meet uh, Mircea Eliadi, who's, mm-hmm. yeah, kind of a legend, um, anthropologist, scholar of religion, wrote a big fat book on yoga, wrote a big fat book on shamanism, on uh, rites of initiation. And, mm-hmm. um, really difficult for me to kind of get into that style of writing, mm-hmm. but uh, he influenced someone who was a great translator for me, who you also mentioned, Robert L. Moore, who oh. listeners would know from uh, authoring primarily uh, King Warrior, Magician, Lover, but he also wrote a great book on uh, the archetype of initiation. Um, uh, another one called Facing the Dragon about confronting uh, grandiosity. Um, so he's been a great uh, translator of some of that scholarly work for me, who, you know, mostly a lay person. So what was it like when you met Robert Moore? What was that relationship like? Well, we had a, an interesting relationship. He really liked me at the same time. Uh, he kind of feared me. Uh, uh, what I mean by this, I, I, I took all of his courses and everything that came out in his books later about the king, warrior, magician, lover, all that. He was doing courses on that stuff. So I, I took all of those. And during those courses, I was very active in the classes. Sometimes he would turn them over to me to, to do something with shamanism, you know, or even something about Eliade. Uh, and he seemed to enjoy that. But one day he called me into his office and he said, you know, I don't know whether to tear your face off or give you my blessing. Hmm. I said, why? And in a very grandiose way, he says, this country is not big enough for the two of us. <laughs> and, I, you know, I'm a student, you know, trying to get his doctorate. Here's this big guy uh, threatened by me. And this blew me away. I was very, very disappointed, also been frightened of him after that point. Uh, but there are other times he would be quite warm to me. And he asked me to write this book later, you know. Uh, for a series he was doing with Paulus Press on world spirituality and Jungian psychology and Buddhism, Hinduism, so on. And I did the one on uh, Jungian shamanism. But I am indebted to him for really allowing me to create a platform for my life's work through writing that book. Mm. So that, that was really cool. And that, that was 19... Uh, 90 is when he asked me to write it. I wrote it in 1991 after writing my dissertation, which became another book. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, and I wrote them back to back. I finished the dissertation, got that approved. That became psychotherapy in the sacred. And then uh, I just went straight into young know, shamanism and dialogue. <clears throat> and uh, the task there was to really correlate and go back and forth between uh, Jung's life and work and, um, really Iliadi's model of shamanism, the information he had assembled there. You, you know, if the, if there's a weakness in the book. It's overly reliant on Iliadi. I've learned a lot about shamanism since Iliadi. That's different in some ways. But, uh, so I imagine a conversation between the two, uh, where, uh, you could go back and forth. I could lay out Jung's uh, point of view on something like, uh, the center and the Shemite view of the heart, you know, compare them. 
that way, uh, soul loss and dissociation, one being the shamanic lingo, soul loss, and the other being Jung's, that sort of thing. And I went through all the topics, the major topics around shamanism, as well as the major topics in Jungian's psychology. And to do that, you know, I read the entire collected works and all of Jung's letters, but I found in the collected works almost everything Jung said about shamanism was indebted to Eliade. Hmm. And uh, Jung was doing alchemy, you may recall, from I think his 50s on to his 80s, you know, yeah. and looking for the metaphor there. And then Eliade introduced him to shamanism, you know, and he saw a set of rich metaphors and he starts quoting him in various articles that are, appear throughout the collected works. Hmm. There's quite a few, a few references, but they're all indebted to what Eliade showed him. Yeah. And then, well, you know, guess- they yeah, I guess he felt the impulse to go and, and kind of find out for himself in a like in a certain capacity, like he did go visit the Pueblo Indians in the American Southwest and he went to Africa. And so there are some passages where he relates interacting with some of the medicine men and elders mm-hmm. in those cultures. And I, I know that uh, their way of speaking about you know, their indigenous psychology really resonated with him and influenced him. Although I don't know if he ever participated in any rituals uh, himself. Yeah, well, uh, certainly during his uh, red book years, prior to those trips, those were in the 1920s, but uh, in the 1914 to 18 period, Jung was doing his own little rituals and ceremonies that were based in... uh, Gnosticism and the work of Ian Blykus. He did, he was doing rituals, ceremonies. Active imagination was a part of that tradition. Then just gave it a name, you know. And uh, later he built the tower, you know, the his chapel mm. or sanctuary to Philemon, his guardian spirit or, or daimonion. So that was there in Young. But um, uh, the question is whether he did uh, psychedelics and uh, Jung denied them. He was afraid of being called a mystic. So if he did do them, he did do uh, mescaline, uh, which is the one he's written about the most. Um, he wanted to deny it for posterity because uh, being accused of being a mystic in his era in Europe was like being accused of being an unsolid new ager in our era. So he wanted his work to be received as something substantial and not just uh, by an ungrounded, airy-fairy kind of guy. Yeah, but, now, nowadays we'd say we don't want to be accused of being woo-woo. Right. But uh, one of my initiations shamanically was uh, out in the desert around Sedona uh, with um, uh, Chris Whitmont, Edward Whitmont, who did work with Young. And uh, his partner, Sylvia Benton Pereira, we both had the same teacher and we both were initiated, our three of us were initiated together out there. Uh, and uh, he asked me if I thought Jung did mescaline. And I said, I have no way of knowing. He says he did. He goes, well, I have friends uh, in Zurich that said he did, you know. He did the mescaline and he was practicing magic. And uh, some of that's been bantered about by some scholars. It's just hard to know. He certainly, his art, um, some of the art in Red Book is reminiscent of, some, well, look at Alex Gray's work. I mean, there's some psychedelic mm-hmm. feel in the intensity and vividness of the imagery. It's possible, but 
We'll never know for sure, probably, <laughs> unless some letters are discovered somewhere. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure, you know, that he, he needed any help to get into that archetypal realm and have those visions. So, uh, you know, I'm curious, like writing this book, how did the, the process of engaging Jung and shamanism in dialogue, how did that affect the way that you worked with people? Well, okay, so, you know, I got the psychological doctoral education and all that statistical stuff for the board exams. And, uh, but I wanted to be able to think shamanically with my clients as well as psychologically for the sake of keeping records and maybe having to answer questions to insurance companies that may audit my records. You know, I needed to be able to translate back and forth between the languages. So I might talk about soul loss with a particular client for whom that idiom might sound appropriate, you know, feel right. Uh, but I'm not going to put that in my notes. Mm. Okay, my documents. Okay. Uh, simply because, you know, that could get me into trouble, either legal or with the insurance companies, at least in the era in which I was doing this, you know, which was, you know, more than 30 years ago. Probably still now, actually. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So I needed to speak two languages. And so what I, I did was I took every psychological co- uh, concept that was important to me and it would pass the muster on records and translated it into shamanic language. Okay. So I didn't have to give up my integrity, but it's like being bilingual. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I hear you. So that's what the book was about for me is giving myself this language. So uh, I had a place to practice, which was called clinical psychology, but I really had this shamanic substance that I wanted to continue to express and use because it seemed quite powerful, Mm. but helpful to people. How would you describe, I mean, how would you distinguish between the shamanic language versus the psychological language? Can you give us a a sense of that? Um, Yeah. In the book, uh, which looks like that, Young and Shamanism and Dialogue. Um, I, I do make uh, fundamental statements like um, both Shamanism and Young acknowledge that uh, something can be missing from the psyche or the personality system uh, that should not be missing, should be there. Shamans call it soul loss. Uh, it might be called repression or dissociation psychologically. Or something is there that should not be. Something's intruding. Uh, a shaman might call that an intrusion or a possession by a spirit or something like that. Um, uh, this would be an upsurge from the unconscious or an autonomous complex hijacking the system and taking over a psychological possession. That was a language Jung used for it too. So that's how I would do it. Mm-hmm. Get out what you were asking. Yeah, no, I feel that. I think one of the reasons why, um, like, I'll call it archetypal shamanism, which is a mm-hmm. term I've been using lately, <clears throat> because shamanism is such a problematic term. It means so many things to different people. I'm really talking about the archetypal aspect of shamanism, you know, so dealing with concepts like soul loss and possession and things like that. And I find that just, you know, kind of as a lay person without a rigorous psychological education, 
I just understand those terms intuitively, like they just feel right and they make sense to me. So I find that often um, my clients, maybe it's just because they're drawn to me you know, in my coaching mm-hmm. practice, uh, that they're very open and receptive uh, to those kind of terms, the shamanic terms versus the more clinical psychological mm-hmm. terms. Like, right. I think they just get it. And I, that's one of the reasons why I think a lot of this stuff is archetypal is because it's just part of our human DNA or inheritance. Yeah, right. And I agree with you. The shamanic metaphors uh, are important. In my own work, I've uh, uh, revisioned my work every so many years. So Jungian shamanism has really taken up into a more basic language of the archetypal heart. And that taken up into psychoshamanism, which is another word that su- suggests I have synthesized depth psychology and shamanic, you know, so the language can flow fluidly. But I notice in my work with my own clients, I prefer the more mythic poetic language that seems to grasp people, gives them an image they can hang on to, and they kind of intuitively get it. Whereas the psychological jargon sounds alienating. Mm. And it's like, can turn them into a specimen or or uh, conjure up fears of uh, my viewing them as... Uh, neurotic or crazy or something like that. So the, the mythopoetic language, I think, is more rich and gentle in its implications. It can yeah. be more precise, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think of it as like it's the language of the heart, and uh, it helps keep us connected, right, so that someone doesn't feel like they're kind of put under glass and we're analyzing them as like a, <laughs> a, a collection yeah. of parts and... Uh, and neuroses and stuff. Yeah. So I'm wondering, like when you started practicing in this way, did you, I mean, were you welcomed with open arms into the Jungian or, or broader psychological community? Um, you know, because you have such a, you put such an emphasis on the, your own shamanic aspect or experience, uh, I, I don't. I don't hear a lot of that in the Jungian or psychological world. So I'm wondering if you ever felt any kind of resistance, or if uh, if it was welcome. Well, uh, actually, uh, there's a pretty huge uh, interest uh, in my work, uh, which is increasing amongst uh, Jungian analysts around the world. In fact, I, I just last week, week before last. Uh, presented to the uh, Society of Union Analysts in Moscow, uh, an event sponsored by the International Psychiatry of, uh, Society of Union Analysts and uh, the Russian Academy of Sciences. And that was a two-and-a-half-hour lecture that was uh, videotaped along with some um, interviews they did to me prior to, to bring it to life. And then I came in live and did Q&A. And... Uh, this lecture hall was filled out. Uh, there wasn't even standing room. And that's just in one country. But uh, I found the same type of receptivity in Europe. Uh, all the uh, avant-garde institutions on the West Coast use my book, usually multiple times in one semester. And during um, uh, this past six months with uh, programs online, including analytic programs, uh, my book sales grew 400%. And that was mo- mostly Jungian institutes throughout the world, as well as those West Coast graduate schools. 
but it did not have its initial takeoff like that. You know, uh, it came out 25 years ago, even though I wrote it 31 years ago. And, uh, it landed with good reviews, but it was kind of a heavy work and the reviews came in kind of slow. And I thought it was all done five years later, but I did put out a, a second uh, edition of it when my contract was up with Paulus Press. And that book took off and, uh, it keeps gaining momentum, you know. So it's, uh, a book's life is uh, usually five years unless it becomes a classic and which this one has now. Hmm. Uh, but you don't have any control over its destiny. It's got a life of its own. And I'm just marveling watching the royalties come in this year, uh, like never before, you know, how's that possible this far down the road? You know, it's a nice thing, but it shows a lot's happening with uh, Jungian psychology there. And I made a pretty good case for Jung being shamanic in essence, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think something else that might be happening, um, you know, so I've done quite a bit of work with psychedelics and that turned into counseling people who are working with psychedelics, helping them prepare for and integrate and understand those experiences and work with them. Um, and, you know, it became really clear to me that the existing psychotherapies that I was familiar with just uh, weren't deep or expansive enough to really include those kind of experiences. So I, I circled back around to Jung, who I tried to get into when I was much younger, but just couldn't grasp. And then I found in my um, late 30s that finally uh, I could understand what he was talking about because I'd had enough experiences of my own. And finally, I felt like I found a psychology that could hold the all of the richness of my own experiences and help me make sense of them. Um, and so I think that maybe the interest in your book is has something to do with the resurgence of psychedelics in the wider culture and people looking for a way to ground those experiences in uh, a Western psychological understanding. Yeah, uh, you're, you're probably right. Um, so back in uh, 2012, I was invited to a keynote for the, uh, conference on, uh, it's really an ayahuasca based conference on Amazonian shamanism in Iquitos. Oh yeah. And, and, uh, so I went down there to do it, uh, and discovered that there were all these ayahuasca centers using my book, uh, for the, they're open to American English reading people. So they have programs. You know. Yeah, all the ayahuasca centers have a little mildewed library full of uh, people can peruse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I've 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 gotten a number of uh, clients that I mentor actually through the ayahuasca centers who picked up my book down there. It was totally unknown to me. I had no idea they had reached the jungle. So yeah, probably it was viewed as kind of relevant, making sense, and navigating all the rich levels of reality and vision and imagery that one goes through or can. Yeah. And, and like, what do we do with these visions? You know, how can we uh-huh. put these into practice in our life and have them inform our own growth and transformation? You know, mm-hmm. uh, cognitive behavioral therapy doesn't cover that, you know? <laughs> right. So for uh, five years, I, I continued to work in the Amazon putting on, uh, 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 workshops, uh, up to three times a year there. Um, 
uh, offering myself from the angle of really uh, being a support uh, to help one process what happens after the thing. And I enjoyed that very much. And uh, what was really fun were people coming from all over the world and a lot of uh, physicians coming. And uh, this was enlightening for me that physicians were interested, you know, in surrendering to the medicine and uh, seeing what happens. And uh, I also have a good neuroscience background and uh, also a holotropic therapy background. I developed my own system called Sacred Breathwork, but I use that as a model for processing and integrating after the ceremonies. Mm. So. And, um, you know, maybe as a way to illustrate how shamanism and Jung both inform your your approach, could you talk about how you help people work with the visions that come to them in something like an ayahuasca ceremony? Yeah, so um, I encourage first uh, in silence putting something into artistic form. It doesn't have to be beautiful. Uh, just get some paper out, do the uh, Graffian mandala, make a big circle, okay? And stay in touch with your ceremony, what you experienced. And uh, just have some watercolors or something, but, or could be colored pens, but just start uh, drawing, marking, things that express different aspects of that. So this is a nonverbal experience. You're in a very nonverbal space when you're doing psychedelic medicines of any sort, you know, and ayahuasca especially. So coming mm-hmm. out, honor where you're at and express from that level. So that's the, the first level uh, of integration of bringing that to the world is just in terms of imagery mm-hmm. and, and form, you know. And uh, then um, you might, uh, if you're in a group setting, process it in a group. Every person shares, but nobody interprets. Okay, whatever is your experience is yours to figure out and let it open up. In fact, I encourage people to take these home, put it up on their walls in their bedroom or wherever they can see it and let it continue to work on them. Mm-hmm. But uh, in the group process, we develop diodes first. And so we'll pair people off and they go off for a couple hours, taking a turn, an hour apiece, just sharing their experience, you know, and using the painting that they've done, the mantle painting as a, reference point for the different facets kind of holds the experience and they may even think of things to add to it as they're doing this and then uh, I've asked them to not share the whole thing with the group when they come back but to crux the essence of it down to uh, the key element of the experience and what they got maybe what they needed and also how they're going to implement this begin implementing it when they return home so the implementation is important and for them to think about it. Mm-hmm. So what am I going to do to remember this and keep a hold of this and make use of it so it just doesn't float away like a dream is a very important part of the experience. And also letting letting them know that I and other people who have a resource list are available. If you should get overwhelmed with something, it can happen. You know, it's important to get in touch with somebody that has a cartography that can hold this experience with you. Mm. But prior to the event with, with, with my ceremonies in the jungle, 
I always worked alongside of a very seasoned Kurandera in the jungle. Uh, but uh, I saw my responsibility primarily to assist them and to lay down a cartography, a Western-style, modern Western-style cartography, and I used Groff's and my synthesis of Jung to articulate that. So people feel more normalized when they have some extreme experiences. They've already heard the map or maybe seen it illustrated because I'll put it on newsprint or whiteboard or whatever so that they kind of have a feel for it. So that helps support too. It's like, oh yeah, he said this is possible and that. And so they don't freak out mm-hmm. yeah. over it. Yeah. I, so, I, I think one of the things that is so disturbing for people when they have an ego dissolution experience is that it, unless they have some kind of um, spiritual or religious foundation that offers them a cartography like that. When, when the small self dies, it can feel like you're just, uh, you're dying, like literally dying. And it gets mixed up with that uh, because they don't have that, that map of the psyche that lets them know that, well, even if you haven't had the experience, just, um, go with it that there is something more to you and that when the ego dies, uh, there's something left, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So it's not so terrifying. So, so in the Peruvian Amazon, the various tribes, there's more than 60 of them in the area around Quitos, um, they, uh, it's not, everybody doesn't take the, the medicine. It's primarily the shamans take the medicine to see what's needed for the patient. And, uh, it's the coming of, you know, uh, the gringo westerner, uh, since about 1990, really, to the jungle, uh, uh, that shifted that into, at least with the gringos that come, that's what they call us, that, uh, they, they get to take the medicine like the shaman. But even in those societies where, uh, the whole community seems to be taken, like the Shipibo, um, uh, they already have a mythologia that holds uh, all of that, you know, mythology. They call it mythologia. And uh, so they ex- can expect anything. They've got a belief system that's flexible and rich enough that, so that's not even, that, that doesn't have to be established. Yeah. You know, they're, they, they're born and domesticated into it. And then the other thing is uh, they, they live in a community. So the community becomes a containing vessel. Uh, but we in modern civilized life don't know much about community. We don't really live in those kind of communities where we're all in touch with each other and getting together regularly for rites of passage and uh, celebrations. But in these societies, the community is everything. You know, it's the main thing. And ayahuasca has been used to help integrate them, you know, mm-hmm. and bond them and renew their mythological roots and so on. Uh, so we have to, coming from outside those indigenous cultures, we have to create some substitute for that because you do need a mythology that supports it and you do need some community context to be alone with this stuff is what made so pe- many people go crazy in the 60s because yeah. that stuff wasn't in place. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that uh, cartography that you used to contextualize the experience? Yeah, sure. So, um, I usually just start with the, 
what Jung called the number one personality. That's the, the ego persona configuration. It's our everyday way of relating to the world that's congruent with modern science, materialism, greed, all that. Social (laughs) norms and things. Yeah, right. So that's the thing that's locked us into hell or to a very limited world. So we're going to expand that. So there's going to be kind of an ego death. And that can be a little disconcerting uh, because when ego death happens, uh, it can be some of your suppressed shadow qualities come up that can be terrifying you don't realize they're your own you see them or maybe you do realize they're your own either way you get terrified you know and you can panic or freak out Uh, so if you know it's normal for that to come come up and if you tell them ahead of time just breathe relax into it you know if you feel nauseated great you feel like you got a vomit here's a pail okay so that's second level okay uh, another level then beyond the uh, initial counter with the dark energies or the shadow energies is uh, a visionary plane that uh, you could call uh, astral or subtle uh, where uh, the spirits can come in. I recall a ceremony in the, the jungle around Iquitos where a jaguar, I saw the shadow walking around the maloka. And then it comes through the screen. It's all screened in. You know, it comes through the screen and jumps into this lady's body. Hmm. At that point, I just went to check on her to make sure everything's okay. You know, this is a big animal. And sitting next to her is uh, a guy that's a plastic surgeon, you know, as a friend of hers, you know. And I just touch her a little bit. And I say, is everything okay? And she goes, yeah, I just got a Jaguar, you know. And the guy, <laughs> the surgeon said to me, and he opened his mouth and showed me his teeth. They were diamonds. So this is a true hallucination. I mean, three people are seeing the same entity here. So that's part uh, of the uh, subtle or astral world that is really opened and it's really vivid. Okay. okay. okay let's pause there for a moment. You know, this is something that fascinates me and something that I wrestle with in my own attempt to understand makes sense of these experiences. Now, you know, we talked earlier about how you've bridged uh, shamanism and, and psychology, right? So do you have a psychological view of what's happening there? Like, is this like the collective unconscious making itself real in the visionary state or, you know, what's happening there? Are we all like kind of dipping into the same pool of the collective unconscious at that point? I think in that case we were, you know, but there can be people in other realms, even other morphic fields, as Sheldrake calls them, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah, that would be Jung's term for the spirit world. And he said it, a spirit world was actually a more precise term, but it doesn't fly in modern culture. And so he, he, all, he translates all his mystic shamanic experiences into things like archetype, anima, <laughs> um, complex, autonomous complex, you know, so he tries to wrap it back in uh, number one uh, personality's language. But for him, this stuff was really alive. And uh, an archetype, when he defines it as a primordial image, this is a living being, an entity that you're interacting with. Yes, he would say it's in the collective unconscious or the spirit world. So he does the translating there, and I'm comfortable with that, you know. 
But for him, a lot of people don't realize this. Um, uh, he said the psyche stretches out through the whole cosmos. So we are all in it. It's an error to think it's just inside you. Earlier on in his work, he thought that, you know, in this Freudian era, but he came to his own experiences to sense it was the anime cosmose, the cosmic soul that uh, everything participates in. Yeah, I'd uh, say the psyche isn't in us, we're in psyche, right? Yeah, right. So, and I would say indigenous uh, mythologies and maps uh, would pretty much agree. They'd be pretty much comfortable with that. You know, what you call it, it's just difference in language. But at that point, you're acknowledging something transpersonal. Mm. Okay, beyond the human is interacting with the human. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you think is happening with something like ayahuasca that allows us all to have that same shared vision. It's like sharing a dream while half awake, right? You know, maybe not even half awake. It depends on the person, but yeah. (laughs) Right. Um, I mean, we're so in it that we might not be much aware of anything else at the time we're in it, which is, which is just fine when you're, you're in it. Although if you have to go to the bathroom or something to get up, you, you have to reorient pretty quick. It's like, where's the door? Yeah, but you usually have the ability to kind of snap out of it and sober up enough to make it to the loo, right? Depends on the dosage, you know. <laughs> right, yeah, <laughs> yeah, sure. There's always There's exceptions. People, you know, it, a lot of our ceremonies, midway, people need a second dose. You know, they didn't get quite enough. They'll take that, but occasionally it happens that they were just starting to get off at that point, so they're double dose and they can't even move for like 16 hours. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So, yeah. So good, yeah. 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 Okay, so that's like a, the the other level of the the shared vision. Um, now, is there is there something else that you present to people? Like, what about that experience of the void? Yeah. Right. So, uh, so we're kind of in the middle subtle realm. Low subtle realm might be just nature spirits, but the the big guides of the godlike entities, whether they're in animal form or mythic, or some other mythic form. Uh, you know, like a Buddha or an avatar or a Christ figure, they can appear. That's the high subtle. Um, but, uh, the void is, uh, just beyond any form whatsoever. And it's that ever present, uh, um, uh, experience of, uh, being conscious and bliss without any form whatsoever. And it's pregnant as it is empty. So all words fail it. Mm. Okay, but it's really the one life that's manifesting here and there, now and later, um, different epochs, different situations, and folding back into itself or rolling back into itself. So it's you might it's like if you say, "I am water." That's my true nature, and this present form is me. Call this body. These are just holy mad. But if you break the form, the water floats back to where it came from you know mm-hmm. okay so the art of uh not identifying with any form uh comes with uh stabilizing your experience of a void and that can happen too with ayahuasca and with virtually any psychedelic and it can be a crowning experience because it's liberating to realize that you are in no form whatsoever you know and you can interact with the realm of form if you choose you know 
Mm-hmm. And, how and, you and you could choose, yeah, choose how you interact with uh-huh. the realm of form. Yeah. 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 So everything that you've laid out there resonates with me. I really have a sense that, uh, you know, you've accurately mapped out, um, that, that, uh, cartography. I wonder though, a little red flag comes up for me. As soon as we lay out a cartography like that with levels of experience, um, I always think that there's maybe a danger that people are going to be striving to go higher and higher and higher. Yeah, right, right, right. That's right. And um, uh, it, there's some use for that, trying to experience the different states. So you have a taste of consciousness at these different levels or in these different dimensions. But uh, I think the real art is to be here in present to what's happening now and uh, exploring what's right before you rather than trying to distort it with some ambition to achieve something else that isn't here right now. Yeah, that so ambition to, takes you out of presence immediately, right? That's right. That's right. So you can't explore what's happening. So uh, you can barely be aware of what's happening because you're waiting to be somewhere, somewhere mm-hmm. else. So now, you're not fully alive because you're... <laughs> Off in virtual space somewhere, not attending to that either. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's like, yeah, you're already time traveling to some (laughs) idealized future point or experience. Um, Exactly. You know, I'm wondering, a question that comes up quite a bit when I work with people who are using psychedelics. Um, So one thing that I do see is that often uh, people have these experiences and they're really affirming and nourishing to the spirit and the soul. They go back home, go back to their everyday life, and they start to feel that sense of soul loss again. And the only answer they have is to go back to the jungle for another retreat, another ayahuasca ceremony out in the country, Mm -hmm. whatever it is, right? So how have you found, um, I mean, how do you counsel people around that? Do you encourage them to develop, uh, like Thomas Moore called a religion of one's own, like a daily ritual that helps keep them connected? Or do you think it's okay that we just keep going back to ceremony in order to get, um, kind of reconnected to that? Uh, I'm all about religion of one's own, as was Jung, <laughs> as right. was Jung. Uh, in fact, uh, Jung was trying to figure out the new religion, and that's why it comes down to something like that. And he thought maybe 600 years from now, humanity would be able to have some type of consensual experience, something like a Quaker experience where you dip into stillness or silence, you mm-hmm. know, and then allow that whatever is the ground of being to speak through you that maybe have helped to someone else or something, but... Young uh, himself, he had his own chapel, this tower that he built, you know, with his guardian spirit or diamond painted on the ceilings of the upstairs bedroom, you know, and stars. And he carved his different entities, these uh, numerous figures he interacted with in stone. Uh, this was his religion in this chapel. He said, without this space, my life's work could not have come into being. Mm. Uh, his theurgy, which is a form of ritual worship and prayer was a daily experience. And uh, I have used that. LEI influenced me to the importance of connecting with the center, you know, access Monday, you know, 
which is connects you with source. And so, uh, that's a place out of which you want to pray or meditate, chant, sing. I do it every morning and I encourage people to do it. A lot of my, my students and mentors that I work with, I teach them how to get a symbolic life going. And, uh, I hope to hear back on its development because I don't feel satisfied that they're grounded in an ongoing practice if they don't have some type of what Jung called a symbolic life. And that's what he meant by symbolic life, you know, is some type of religion of your own. Yeah. Well, I think that's important. You know, um, I was talking to a friend who's studied Jung and he's a, now a registered psychotherapist and he was saying, uh, Jung is my religion. And I said, well, that's great in terms of like your cosmology and uh, perspective and approach to life. But what's the practice? Like I'm a big praxis kind of guy. I come from a blue collar background and I'm more interested like, okay, what are you doing every day to keep you connected so that you can get renewed and, and filled up and tune in and get the new insight and inspiration for the day? Um, I just, I don't see that many people taking up that kind of joyful discipline of a, a real kind of structured, uh, consistent daily practice. I mean, what's been your experience of that? Do you find people are receptive and they've uh, got the motivation to do it? Uh, you know? Uh, well, this is a problem with our culture um, is that we, we don't take the sacred that seriously. Uh, psychedelics are easy. They open you up almost effortlessly. Okay. But daily practice, that requires some intention, willpower, focus. You have to do something. You know, it's not going to just happen. You have yeah. to do something. And this was Sab- Maria Sabina's problem with uh, uh, Watson and the Westerners that came down there uh, with for the mushrooms and, and uh, <clears throat> Uh, Mexico, the Mazatacan way that she had. And, uh, she was, she didn't understand it, but she was blown away. Uh, her ceremonies were for healing. That was it. That was not religion for her. Even though she saw angels, she had this book that transmitted to her directly what she was to do and how to diagnose and pull out stuff. And it's quite amazing. But, uh, she viewed herself as a Catholic. That was the official way to view herself, you know. Um, she said, you know, if you're looking for God, go to church, mm. you know, but that implied practice, you know, yeah. worship, <laughs> pray, have a community. Um, uh, just doing the psychedelics itself is not the religion. You know, if you're not linking yourself ongoing daily, that's not really a, a religion. It's, uh, at least it's not one with any efficacy to it. Yeah. You know. And so it's in our culture, uh, it's overly materialistic. And in fact, it's the most materialistic and rational culture on the planet right here in these United States. And Canada is not far away from that either. <laughs> no, we're right with so, you. We're just following your lead most of the time. So. <laughs> for yeah. Good or, for good or bad. Yeah. But, you know, I've been working all over the world, four continents, many different cultures. And it's the coming back out of that. Coming home to the United States and I can just, the materialism is so palpable. It's, uh, it's, it, it's certainly like a prison. I mean, everything seems so solid and concrete and unimaginative. And that's, that's why I think, you know, for me, 
I really had to, you know, after spending time in the Amazon in a way, uh, when I was apprenticing to be a yoga teacher and all that, you know, I'd come home and I'd feel that, you know, I'd feel that dominant culture closing in on me. And it made me kind of, um, add more, more fire, more, um, intention, more effort into my practice. Like I, it was a lifeline for me and it, and it has been even, you know, even more now, especially with, uh, COVID time and being disconnected from other peoples in the communities that I would normally draw nourishment from. It's just, I've had to double down on my, my personal practices, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We mentioned something about the heart earlier on. Maybe yeah. this would be a good point to say something about that. I love that. Yeah. Thanks. So, <clears throat> you know, what I called the archetypal heart at one point, uh, so for me, uh, an awakening of the heart, uh, formally came through an apprenticeship with this, uh, Ecuadorian, uh, shaman, Don Alberto Toxel. I worked with him for eight years. And he was not easy to work with for me because, um, he was a man of few words and he was like a poet and he would give very little instruction, you know. But, uh, <clears throat> he wanted me to increase my capacity to feel. Okay. And then to greet every being I meet in every time and place from my heart. But, uh, it took me a while to realize it was from the heart. He would teach me these chants, you know. One is, it goes like this. <laughs> And uh, you get up in the morning and you sing it to the plants, you sing it to the sun, and uh, it opens up your ushaya essence, you know, which is, let's say, your true nature, your archetypal essence. And you're greeting a plant or a mosquito or a bird or the rain clouds, whatever it is, you establish a channel of connection mm. where love circulates between mm. you. So uh, your sense of identity kind of expands into this greater cosmos of loving ecological relationships sort of thing and uh, I asked him trying to clarify uh, who the feeler was you know I said well where do I feel with what do you mean by feeling anyway mm-hmm. and he said well not the single sentido you know the five senses uh, uh, I'm talking about a capacity to feel and I said is it intuition he goes mm, it's not intuition I said, well, where do you feel it from? He goes, mi corazón. You should know this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. So I opened from here. This is where my heart theory was born, really, coming from what you were teaching me. You open from here, and the song comes from here. Mm-hmm. And uh, in his uh, mythology, uh, everything has a heart, an essence, and an ushai. Everything in creation does. So you put yourself in resonance with it when you greet it and begin to establish relationships, and then it can reveal more of itself to you. Well, I found psychedelics did that too, particularly the mushroom, the, the psilocybin mushroom really opened me up to a very direct spiritual connection with all living things. But here was a way to do it as a daily practice, you know, and he taught me, uh, you know, to do it the first thing when I wake in the morning, to greet my food. Every element of the day is to greet. And at night, uh, to uh, greet the night, 
and the dream time, you know, and then give thanks, express gratitude for your life during the day with all of your relatives, you know. It was a very simple path. And uh, if you take a shower, you know, that's a water ceremony. Mm-hmm. So you let the water come inside you as well as outside, and you're cleaning out the inside, you know, even the ri- rivers in your arteries, you know, and veins, mm-hmm. all the impurities, and letting it go down the drain, too. If you go to the bathroom, you're giving your feces, you know, you're, you're giving food back to the Pachamama to recycle and so on. So to become aware of this, you know, and sing the chant as you're doing it. So there was a ceremony of eating, the ceremony of eliminating, the ceremony of going to water, the ceremony of the wind, letting the wind blow through your hair and carry stress away. The ceremony of fire that can illuminate you and also burn stress, burn neg- negative energies. Uh, ceremony of earth. You can bury yourself in the earth. You dig into it and it'll suck stress out of your body. It's a good thing for people with post-traumatic stress. And ceremonies of waters for purging and uh, cleansing. And uh, this was his little cosmology, and it was profound. I'm going to sing a little more of the chant now. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's a kind of yikaro. But hatun is the void. It's the great force of life. Seemed to be an egg of infinite boundaries. In other words, no boundaries. And inside of that is another egg. We're a kocha which is like the collective unconscious. We work this out together through conversations. You know, it's like the super morphic field that holds everything that exists and has existed and so on. And then uh, Pachamama is uh, Mother Nature, not simply Mother Earth. Okay. It's the material universe present since the Big Bang. Hmm. Okay. And within that is Ashpamama. It's another egg within the egg of Pachamama. Okay. Ashpamama is the planet Earth then. Earth mother and our bodies are made of it. So we're each mother earth walking and so on. And then within the egg of Pashma Mama is all of individual versions, including the plants and insects and so on. So when you sing this chant, I spent years singing this around the garden and in the forest, you know, and just deepening into it. And so extending the boundaries of my love, the boundaries of my heart, you know, and actually learning to navigate by means of my heart <clears throat> through a simple little uh, uh, practice I call the NGS, the navigational system, which just noticing how it feels in here. It's just I have physical physical feeling, a bit metaphoric too, but you know, whether something feels right mm-hmm. and in integrity with you or wrong and out of integrity with it. And navigating my choices, my yeses and no's, my my free will being in line with that, you know, and my intention. And so my actions and what I create comes out of feeling here and listening to what it's telling me. And uh, I find that I'm being uh, invited all the time uh, by my own guardian spirit, this entity with the wings spread out that I saw when I was having my spiritual emergency. Uh, our relationship was deepened like Jung did with Philemon, 
And uh, so I imagine it speaking to me through this system of the heart. So mm-hmm. I'm at once when I open the heart and live this way, I'm aligned with the Axis Mundi. I'm aligned with my guardian spirit. I'm aligned with the source reality. So I'm in my integrity and I'm living my true nature. That true nature, which gets shut down for most people once they're old enough, know enough language that the parents can begin downloading the cultural codes and shutting all that down so they can adapt to society. Yeah. So there's the cosmology. The cartography is built right into these chants. Mm-hmm. So when you're doing the medicines, you have it there available, supporting you as you're in it. And if you get scared, you can just sing the chant, befriend whatever's coming up. Yeah, accept it as part of that reality that you've opened yourself to through the chant. Uh, It's beautiful, you know. Um, Before ayahuasca, for me, there was yoga. And uh, my Indian yoga guru, Deskachar, would always uh, put things so simply, just like your Ecuadorian teacher, Mm -hmm. um, simply and succinctly, right, getting to the heart of the matter. And he would Mm -hmm. say simply that chanting opens the heart. That's why he didn't concern himself with so much about like chakra systems and all this like progressive opening of the chakras and all Mm -hmm. that. You just say, you know, you start with opening the heart and everything flows from there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, Don Alberto, I could ask him, whatever I asked him, he could go into very deeply, you know, that always surprised me. But uh, I noticed I was always initially wanting more from him. You know, yeah, more and information. Grand ideas, words, yeah. Those big rituals. You know, he says, so I know if you, yeah, he says, I, I, I know you want me to be interesting. He said, <laughs> the mind wants that. It's hungry. Give me hot ideas. Give me fascinating rituals, you know. Yeah. But what I'm trying to show you is deeper than that, you know. And I finally got it, you know, that it's because he was strong where I was weak. He was a great teacher for me, you know. Because here I am, this guy from Chicago with two doctorates, you know, and an yeah. analytic diploma, got everything worked out in my head, you know, and he's, he's sabotaging that whole education system and allowing me to live from a different place. Yeah, it, yeah, it reminds me of like Jung's typology, right? You had this real, um, developed thinking capacity and he had this real developed intuitive capacity. One very verbal, loves complexity, loves to know yeah. like that magician archetype. The other, more the, the lover archetype, less about talking about things, more just about feeling into them and sensing. Mm-hmm. Like a beautiful marriage, right? Uh, teacher and student mm-hmm. balancing each other out, teaching each other mm-hmm. what the other is uh, more deficient or the inferior function, as the Jungian might say. That's right. And, and that's I'm glad you used that word because it's exactly how I came to understand Don Alberto and why I should continue working with him was because of this inferior quality. Like he was speaking where I had this inferior uh, uh, level of development. And so I needed that to develop more of myself. I was top heavy, yeah. if you will. <laughs> yeah. You know, I meet, a, especially I think men in the, the Western or Westernized culture are often very top heavy and when they get involved in psychedelics, they love to read like the Terence McKenna, um, the Stanislav Grof. They love to read about all these like really heady concepts and they love the maps of the psyche and the cosmos and all of that stuff. They get really kind of uh, attracted to that. Um, how do you, as 
you know, kind, kind of coming from that orientation yourself, how do you recommend that um, top heavy folks learn how to drop into their heart and balance themselves out in that way? Any kind of uh, easy to grasp tips for people? Well, one way is to practice uh, what I was talking about here is like drop down from here to here and uh, notice what you're feeling and uh, you ask yourself in the morning, okay, what kind of day do I want to have, you know, or create, you know, see what really stirs you here with a big yes, you know, and also notice when it's going, no, not so much, you know, Mm. that's one way, just start developing a practice of, Based on feeling, you know, yeah. from the heart, you know, that's, that's one way. Another way is if you have the shamanic practice or meditative practice where you have some type of guide or Ishta Deva or guardian spirit, it's called a shaman. Uh, these also, uh, speak to where your inferior function is existing, you know, and try, just like my teacher Don Alberto, giving you stuff that you don't readily know or can't easily access. Because your number one personality is just taking over and shutting it out. So when you, <coughs> when you journey or connect with that source, you're likely to get information or intuitions or insights, you know, that you wouldn't otherwise get. Yeah. You're screening it out. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a big part of my yoga practice is just that tuning in and and listening. Um, yeah, seeing where my energy wants to move that day. Um, and that requires, you know, that daily discipline of like showing up and doing the thing that works for you. You know, mm-hmm. for me, it's moving and breathing and chanting and that kind of thing. But I think mm-hmm. everyone just has to find their own special sauce, you know, what works for them. Um, other things that I think are been really helpful to me and I think others, uh, paying attention to dreams for sure. And doing some like dream tending work and something else that I've been doing is holding shamanic drum circles. Uh, one thing I find is that a lot of people I meet these days aren't connected to their dream life at all. They think that they don't dream. And so there's nothing to work with in the morning. And I think that just has to do with being um, inundated with images from the culture and messages from the culture that they're just so full, there's no room for their own vision to emerge. But I found that, you know, of course, psychedelics can be helpful in, um, in that the limpieza that needs to happen, the clearing out so right. that the vision can arise, but also simply, uh, journeying with the drum in a, in a really, in a well-held space, you know, that does have right. that feel of ritual and all the, all the five senses are engaged and then that sixth sense can start to come more and more online. Um, do you, uh, what are some of the other practices that you work with? Well, I'm glad you mentioned the drum circle. Uh, we have it too. And, uh, the crow's nest communities that I founded, uh, here in Belgium and France, South Africa, they have drum circles. And, uh, uh, one of the ways I like about the drum circle is, uh, People journey in silence. We do it in the dark, uh, kind of richer. And then we don't turn lights on after the journey, but allow people to kind of gradually come back and uh, encourage them to share some nature sounds. So it sounds like a jungle in the morning oh, coming alive cool. as people hear. Yeah. <laughs> and then we just wait in silence until someone speaks. 
ask nobody to interpret or inquire. Just listen, take it in, you know. So you never know who's going to speak and where it's going to come from. But the tapestry of visionary beauty is incredible. And often I found uh, what one person says about their own experience touches mm-hmm. someone else deeply, you know. So there's like a community healing going on through it. And people are having the shamanic experience of connecting with these transpersonal others. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I love that approach. You know, I've got my own approach to doing the, the drum journey that has kind of developed in me. And I've been experimenting with holding a space <clears throat> like that and seeing what feels right, you know, checking in with my heart. Um, but I, I love just, uh, the simplicity of that, allowing others to speak, just like what you said, like in the Quaker religion. Right. It's like we tune in, tune into our meditation Mm -hmm. of the heart and we listen to the still small voice within and spontaneously try to be a a prophet, try to speak that word out loud to share with others. Um, I love that you brought that into this shamanic circle. And, you know, for me, these circles, what's been emerging in them and especially during COVID, uh, people are showing up, you know, and they're really getting nourished by them. It's really, it's feeling a void in the culture right now. And it's giving me the energy to, to hold more of them and uh, to continue with it, even though it can be exhausting. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you're talking about young foreseeing five or 600 years in the future, there would be a shared religious experience again, maybe something like the Quakers. This has been the answer for me. And um, especially in this approach where we're drawing on the wisdom of the collective, you know, we're gathering together and seeing what emerges in that, what uh, Michael Mead called the sudden community, you know, the community Mm -hmm. that can happen just for a few hours. And I'm feeling really inspired that this could be a way to bring some ritual, communal religious experience, you know, religious experience in the most direct and real way to bring it back into our Western communities. Yeah, I think so. In fact, community. Um, so uh, we were talking about the drum circle where uh, we, we uh, chant or sing these different animal sounds, the wild sounds of the jungle. Uh, so it's not my idea, but somebody, uh, I encourage different people to lead the drum circle each month. At, we, we gather and uh, each person brings their own spin, their own creativity mm. to it. And this was a, a man who's a, a digital artist. He's very, very intuitive kind of guy. And he added this. And so I, I think um, having uh, shared responsibility, uh, I'm trying to un- undercut my leadership because uh, for uh, like 13 years of, been establishing communities, really shamanic communities around, uh, the world. And, uh, there's a big one in Belgium, big one in France, one forming in Italy, big one in South Africa and so on. And here, and, uh, the tendency, uh, is to want to have a stable leader. I mean, this is somebody that's always running the show. And, uh, I've been frustrated with that model and uh, working to uh, get the attention off me as the teacher, 
what's what's spring forth. It's like I'm trying to get people to step into the elderine role. Yeah. Try totally. out their own leadership. You know, the shamanism is about direct revelation. Yeah. You know, it's between you. And so get unstuck from a teacher. And one way to do that is invite people who are ready in the community to step in and contribute. That's so great, man. That's so needed. Yeah. Part of it for me, just even that, you know, which happens in most kind of drum circles, everybody shares, even just that seems to be a much needed medicine for people in this day and age to share their experience authentically from the heart without trying to posture or worried if it's going to be cool enough or, you know, out there enough or whatever. But, you know, because mm-hmm. people come forward with the most simple little visions. And it's often those ones that keep resonating within me weeks afterward. I'm still getting the teaching about, you know, uh, the other night a woman talked about a vision where it was a little ant was leading her into a cave. And she wasn't quite ready to go into the cave, but the little ant was just patient and waiting for her. So whenever she's ready, she can go back to that ant and maybe start to venture into that cave. And so like, you know, sometimes we have this idea that the power animals are these really grand, fierce beasts, you know, like the jaguar and and the wolf or the eagle. Mm. Sometimes the most powerful teacher Mm. is like the smallest little creature talking about like patience persistence, strength, the ability to carry the weight, you know? So I I love it. And um, helping people to trust their own, well, trust their ability to be a channel for that universal wisdom that uh, can flow through us all if we're open to it, right? Yeah, right. One thing that struck me about shamanism is the communal basis of it. it's always emerged in a community context. Had a lot of it had to do with survival and so on. Yeah. So uh, we've got a, a model going on with neo-shamanism, and it's very beautiful. But uh, uh, going to a retreat center, you know, Joshua Tree or in a hotel somewhere, which is how Harner started out, you know, hotel lectures and a bunch of strangers to send and get their own rooms and, come in for the workshop and then go back to the rooms. It's not community, you know? Uh, so how to get that going? And many people in within neo-shamanism have developed their own communities, but I became aware that um, these communities need to, need to get off the guru model or the teacher model, because if we want sustain, you know, if we want to live on, it cannot be dependent on the teacher. Yeah. yeah. You know, the people need to carry it into the future. Yeah. So they've got the teacher in them needs to be empowered or the leader in them, whatever you want to call it, ritual elder. Yeah. Yeah. So great. So great. Well, it's been uh, about an hour and a half and it's just flown by for me. But uh, I think you've given given people enough to chew on for a while. So I I really want to thank you for um, joining up with me here and going on this little journey and sharing some of your experience. Uh, it's been, it's been really great for me to hear this. You know, I feel like uh, I found a real, uh, a soul brother or soul uncle. of some yeah. Kind. yeah. I feel that too. It's been very nice. And I thank you for the invitation and uh, I look forward to seeing what you post. This sort of thing. Yeah. So um, you've got some stuff coming up actually, right at the Crow's Nest Center which is in uh, Michigan, Upper Michigan? Uh, it's in uh, southwest Michigan, which is towards the lower half. I, I'm not like 90 minutes away from Chicago if you drive around the lake. 
but I'm in a forest, uh, and uh, it's pretty wild here, <laughs> and fairly remote where I'm at. Most people would consider it remote. But you can go north of Michigan and go even more remote. You know? But what we have coming up is uh, uh, we're holding space for Vision Quest. Um, several members of our community, I have land, a couple other guys have land, and we're providing this. Uh, when I say land, I mean a lot of land and forest and everything where people can have vision quests if they want to do that. So I've been trying to prepare those that want to do that for that. But at the same time, we have um, an intensive workshop. It's five days that overlaps at the same time and interfaces with the vision quest insofar as those people will be support persons. But uh, that's for some Toltec work we're going to do in self-soul retrieval work, really self-healing. A wounded, wounded healer is uh, one of the definitions of a shaman. You know, somebody that is cleaning their own stuff out, taking complete responsibility for their own well-being. So that's what that workshop is about, and giving tools so people can do that. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about that wounded healer archetype um, lately. And you know, whenever I post <clears throat> something on my Instagram about the wounded healer, it gets a lot of response. So I know um, I'm encouraged by that, actually, that people are understanding that the real healer is the wounded healer and that the wounds mm-hmm. can often be the entry point into our own healing journey. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, this might even warrant another conversation just around that topic. Um, so, you know, if you're open yeah. to it, I'd love to have you back just to talk about the wounded healer and get into that. Yeah, we can do that. Great. So. So if people want to find out about the uh, vision quests and the wounded healer training that you're doing, um, what's the best place to do that? For that one, it's crow's nest shamanism, one word, dot com. And just go to the events page. You'll see uh, a link on the homepage that says the upcoming events. Just go there and we'll direct you. Yeah. And if you want to read more of um, Mikhail's work, he's got uh, a lot of resources available on the website that I've, just found really helpful. Uh, so he's got printouts on the little psychology of the heart and some of the techniques that you can use to tune into that, tune into your internal guidance system. Um, so please check it out. And uh, also see michaelsmith.com if you're interested in the mentoring stuff, you know, and some of the papers I have around that. Great. Well, thanks again, Mikhail. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate it too. It's been great.